The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord In the synagogue at Nazareth, Jesus read from the book of the prophet Isaiah and began to say, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Paul spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. He went down to Capernaum, a city in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astounded at his teaching, because he spoke with authority. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. It's really a pleasure for me to be here this morning. Thanks very much to Tony for inviting me and to Nick who is down at St. Stephen's this morning. I'm pleased to have this opportunity to share with you some of what's happening at St. Stephen's and to thank you for all of your support. I'm now in my eighth year as vicar of St. Stephen's, and I've been aware through every step of our progress of the critical role that our partner churches play in all aspects of our ministry. Your prayers, your financial support, your contributions of food and time during our summer program, the hours of volunteer service members of the congregation have given to the young people in our after-school program. In all things, you have truly been a partner. I'm thankful for your confidence in me and in my ministry, and on behalf of the children and families we serve, I'm thankful for your generosity and the spirit of Christian love with which your support is given. When I arrived at St. Stephen's in October of 1999, I found a church that was barely functioning. Aside from the handful of people who gathered on Sunday morning, there was little activity in the church. Today, we are thriving. Our congregation has grown to where we now average 75 or more on Sunday. Every weekday afternoon, more than 80 children and teens come through our doors, excited and ready to eat a hot lunch, and then to participate in our vibrant program of academic support, cultural enrichment, art, computers, sports, music, and much more. More than 20 teens 
stay with us each evening until 7.30. Engaging in a creative program combining academics and leadership development and keeping them safe during sometimes dangerous evening hours. Many of you are familiar with our summer program. During the summer of 2000, my first summer, we served 20 children for four weeks, every day from 10 to 3, a total of 2,000 hours of programming. Last summer, we served more than 200 kids in three locations, a total of 33,000 hours of programming. Our program ran daily from 8.30 to 4 with breakfast and lunch and a snack, academics, art, sports, music, and a wide range of other activities and field trips. This summer, we're planning a program for more than 320 kids in four locations, a total of 64,000 hours of programming. We'll operate one of the largest summer programs in the city this summer helping to keep kids safe and healthy, supporting their education, giving teens jobs, and bringing together youth from different neighborhoods to promote community and peace. We run these programs on the tightest of budgets, providing a nurturing educational environment for just over $3 per hour per child. And I should mention that each month we distribute more than a ton and a half of food to hundreds of families in need through the ministry of our food pantry. We advocate for families as well, supporting them in dealing with housing issues, immigration issues, as well as offering pastoral support. We also have a growing ESL class for adults. We are a small church. We're a poor church in the sense that most of our members are poor, living in public housing, on fixed incomes, working at low-paying jobs, unable to support the church financially, though everyone tries very hard and gives faithfully. I have said that our patron saint should be Matthias. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, the disciples, now referred to as apostles, decide that they must choose another member to maintain the Lord's ordering of them as twelve. And so they nominate two men and they pray for divine guidance. When that seems at best unclear, they cast lots and the lot falls on Matthias and he's added to the eleven. Though not under the most auspicious circumstances, we've been called like Matthias, to serve and have attempted to do so as best we can. But lately, to tell you the truth, I've been feeling perhaps more like another biblical figure. I've been feeling a bit more like the prophet Jeremiah, from whom we hear this morning. God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah responds, Ah, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. 
I hear those words or similar words of denial or rejection of God's call in my own response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when I do, when I say, I understand what you're asking, God, but I'm the wrong guy, or this is the wrong time, or St. Stephen's is the wrong church, or the Episcopal Church is the wrong denomination. When I do that, I know that I stand in good company. I stand in a long line of good, honest, hardworking people who have tried to give God the brush off. Think about Moses. What did Moses say when God spoke to him out of the burning bush and commanded him to go to Pharaoh to speak for the Israelites? Moses said, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And what about Jonah? God said to Jonah, go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come before me. Jonah's response, Jonah set out to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. Even Jesus, as we heard a couple of weeks ago in the Gospel of John, when his call came, was leery. The wine gave out at the wedding in Cana, and his mother, knowing even more than did her son, said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. Indeed, I know that I have grown comfortable with that response, preferring it to its opposite, preferring to say no than yes to God, with all that saying yes might mean. I've grown comfortable saying no on behalf of the church that I represent as a priest, the Episcopal Church, comfortable saying our hour has not yet come. My sisters and brothers, I can no longer do so. I believe that our hour has come. In the face of all of the social ills in our society, in the face of poverty, economic injustice, and all of its attendant symptoms, violence against and among youth, drug addiction, homelessness, high school dropout, I believe that our hour has come. And I believe that our hour has come to do more than simply try to pick up the pieces, to try to comfort and succor those who have been trampled on by an unjust and even cruel system. In particular, today, I believe our hour has come to try to stop the war in Iraq. In 1967, Dr. Martin Luther King began to turn his attention from civil rights to Vietnam. He was widely criticized for this shift, both among those who felt that his message of freedom for all Americans would be lost, and by those who felt his impact would be tarnished by an apparent sympathy for communists. And so Dr. King took to the pulpit of the Riverside Church in New York City 
on April 4, 1967, exactly one year before his death, to explain why ending the war in Vietnam had become his principal goal. I have made this change, he said, because I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor so long as adventures like Vietnam continued to draw men and skills and money like some demonic, destructive suction tube. I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. I can only imagine what Dr. King would have to say about Iraq. The New York Times recently reported that the cost to the United States of the war effort in Iraq is more than $300 million a day with economists estimating that the total price of the war could surpass $2 trillion. Imagine, if you can, what $2 trillion could do in our schools, in terms of jobs, in terms of access to higher education, in terms of access to health care. To put it in our terms, we could run all of our youth programs, including the summer program I described earlier, for what it costs to prosecute the war in Iraq for less than two minutes. I've known from the beginning that the war in Iraq would severely limit our nation's ability to give every child a fair chance. But Dr. King said something else that day in the Riverside Church, something that has both humbled and inspired me. He was talking about violence in the inner city, speaking particularly about the increasingly militant movement among young African-American men. But he could just as easily have been speaking of young men in gangs who have been killing each other in growing numbers on the streets of cities across America. I have tried to offer them my deepest compassion, he preached, while maintaining my conviction that social change comes most meaningfully through nonviolent action. But they asked me, and rightly so, what about Vietnam? They asked me if our own nation wasn't using massive doses of violence to solve its problems, to bring about the changes it wanted. Their questions hit home, and I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. These words ring true to me today. Our leaders want to address youth violence by putting more police on the streets and instituting tougher sentencing laws and longer jail terms. For offenders. We have sought to address youth violence through programs of support, helping young people manage in a difficult environment. But as Dr. King says, we cannot tell our young people that violence is wrong, even as we use violence to solve our problems in the global political arena. Sadly, the experience of violence, perhaps more than anything else, 
is what unites our kids. Kids from the city and kids from the suburbs. They are bombarded by violence, television, movies, video games. It is inescapable in our culture, and the war is a central element in this awful exposure. The tragic murder at Lincoln Sudbury High School brought to the suburbs a sight we are too familiar with in the city. Young people attending the funeral of one of their peers. Earlier this month, not one but two classmates of several children in our program were killed in separate incidents, a sixth grader and an eighth grader. One was riding the tea with some of our kids on the way home from school. Our kids got off at Back Bay. Their friend was shot down minutes later after stepping off the tee at Jackson Square, just two blocks from where my own son attends kindergarten. We have a number of kids in our programs whose fathers have been killed. The sound of gunshots at night is a regular experience for our kids. I see the fear and the anxiety on their faces every day, and I want to do more than just try to keep them alive. For five years now, since the beginning of our nation's solely militaristic response to the events of 9-11, the war in Afghanistan and then in Iraq, I've been echoing the words of Jeremiah. Truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. For years now, I've been saying to young people, violence is not the answer. While remaining silent in the face of a government which conveys to them implicitly the opposite message. I can't do that anymore. I have called upon myself and I call upon you and upon our church. Yes, the little Episcopal Church, such as we are, to stand up in the spirit of the great prophet Isaiah. Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, Here am I. Send me. When we do that, when we say yes, to God, when we take up the cause of justice, when we struggle against the madness of war and the fear and complacency of others, whether we take to the streets or lobby our representatives in Congress or refuse to allow our young men and women to register for the draft or join the military, or when we support and encourage the leaders of our church to take a public stand against the war. We may get the kind of reaction Jesus got in this morning's gospel lesson after reading from the prophet Isaiah in the temple. Aren't these Episcopalians, people might say? Aren't these the people from that quiet, sort of stodgy church down the road? Who are they to demand action? Who are they to take to the streets? Who are they to stand for justice? We may get a variety of responses. I'm gathering a group of activists next week at St. Stephen's to consider what our plan to stop the war will be. And I know that there will be fear and concern about how our message will be received.
But I'm confident that the spirit of the Lord will be upon us. I'm confident that God will be with us just as God was with Moses and Jeremiah and Jonah and with Jesus because God's promise is everlasting. When we say yes to God, God works in and through us to bring the reign of the kingdom. And at the very least, we will know that in the critical moment, we did not keep silent. And further, I believe that our children need to see us standing up for what's right. Our children need to know that we recognize that the way things are is not right and that we can try to do something about it. Hear the words of Dr. King on that day nearly 40 years ago, and I substitute the word Iraq for Vietnam. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop it now. I speak as a child of God and a brother to those suffering poor in Iraq. I speak for those whose land is being laid waste, whose homes are being destroyed, whose culture is being subverted. I speak for the poor of America who are paying the double price of smashed hopes at home and death and corruption in Iraq. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands against the path we have taken. I speak as one who loves America, to the leaders of our own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. You have been a faithful partner with us in our ministry at St. Stephen's. We have done good work together, and I know we will continue to do so, making a real difference in the lives of young people who face a reality we can't truly imagine, and perhaps working out our own salvation in the process. I ask you today to consider ways in which we might be partners in a greater struggle for peace, which includes stopping the war and preventing future wars. Let us no longer be complicit by our silence, but rather be empowered by God's spirit of justice to act. Whom shall God send? And who will go for God? Here are we. Send us. Amen. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.